Good morning, everyone. Morning. Um, ooh, I'm going to see if I can work this thing now. Um, oh, there we go. Thank you, Johnny. It's great. And there was I thinking you had, you had um, got your hair cut to kind of make me feel more at ease with you this, today. But actually, it was part of some far more holy plan. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's great to be with you um, all at Trinity um, Church this morning. Um, I from time to time sneak in with uh, members of my family. Um, I didn't sneak in this morning. I came kind of, as it were, to, to share in uh, more publicly in the ministry here. Love what God is doing here, praying with you and for you, giving thanks uh, for things like Tuesday night, um, giving thanks for, for some of you who I know are going down into the city to pray with people in the city giving thanks for the way people are being drawn to faith and being built up in faith and those whom God is calling to be a part of this adventure, uh, part of Trinity Church, part of what God is doing in Nottingham through all, his, uh, all the, the, the local churches um, that by his spirit he's established and planted um, uh, for his purpose in this city and, and around the county. Um, so it's great to be with you today and I, I kind of feel in one sense um, what Johnny's already shared, just makes you want to just give over the rest of the time for prayer today. But, um, uh, but I'm going to share some things God's put on my heart, and, and you'll see that there is quite a lot of resonance with what Johnny has already shared and what God is doing, it would seem, at this time um, in uh, our city and, and at Trinity. And as some of you may know, we're, we're going to move then into receiving communion um, something which we're all invited to do if we would like to, um, and we'll come to that um, in a short while. Uh, but George said there are two readings, and the other reading, in fact, both the readings for today, both the reading George read and the one I'm going to read, a gospel reading, um, I thought that's a, a good thing for a, a, a bishop to do when he comes into the life. I just thought, I'm going to read the gospel to you, um, because um, whatever else I say in a minute, I will have read the gospel. Um, and the, the, both these readings are actually readings that churches, many churches across the diocese will be reading today, um, and in fact across the Church of England. Um, they're kind of the readings that the Church of England sort of set aside for today uh, for what it calls the Sunday next before Lent. I like that title, the Sunday next before Lent. Um, but it is about that preparation for that journey into Lent. And um, for various reasons, you'll see that this, this next reading kind of many ways resonates with what, some of what Johnny's already shared. So I'm going to read to you from Luke um, and chapter 9. And it's the, uh, the account of when Jesus goes up onto the, the mountain with Peter and John and James um, and is transfigured before them. They get to see something of his glory like they had never seen before. Um, uh, so it's Luke chapter 9, verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. 
As the men were leaving Jesus, uh, leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. I love that bit, by the way. It's just uh, it's kind of commentators have kind of sometimes grappled with it. I wonder what was meant by this symbolism of putting up these four shelters. And then actually, the answer is there. Luke says, he didn't know what he was saying. It's kind of like, oh my goodness, we've got to do something. Um, and uh, just love that about Peter. Um, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. You see, when Luke and, and the other gospel writers, when they tell the story of Jesus up on the mountain, revealing his glory, they allow it just to flow into this event down in the valley. And do you know what? Mark, in his gospel, he just adds one more little detail to this story. Um, because after this has happened, you can imagine the disciples had been praying for this boy for a while. And, 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 and the father, quite understandably, was saying, look, you, your disciples have prayed for him. Um, please do something. We're desperate. And uh, the disciples, um, it says in Mark, Mark adds this. He says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. So there you go. Uh, Johnny and I didn't uh, confer on that one this morning when I I went for these readings, but I think God, God is saying something to all of us, to his church, to Trinity Church. Um, and what I want to, um, to talk to you about this morning, I want to talk about the glory of God. That's what both these readings um, have to do. I want to talk to you about the glory of God. I also want to talk to you about that in relation to the place of children in the heart of God, and therefore in the mission of his church. So I want to talk about the glory of God and the place of children in the heart of God and therefore in the mission of the church. As I move towards Lent, um, and uh, I'll be with you praying and, and, and fasting, but um, I also want to, to, um, to share with you that between Lent and Pentecost, one of the things I'm going to be doing with my time as a bishop caring for 300 
uh, and 20 churches around the diocese and 70 Church of England schools that God's entrusted to us. I'm particularly focusing um, a big chunk of my time around um, children, the place of children in the heart of God and the mission of his church. So I'm going to be spending all my Sundays where I'm out in churches, I'm going to be spending it with children. So if I go to a church and they have a, a children's group, I'm going to go out and spend time with the children. I'm going to be there with them, maybe from time to time teaching, but certainly praising God and praying with them. Um, whether they've just got two or three children, as many of our churches have, or whether they have many more children. Um, I'm going to be doing that through the week and working with some of our schools. Um, that's a bit of my own journey and something which I felt God has been speaking to me about as I go uh, into Lent. But actually, I'm going to carry that right on up to uh, Pentecost. And then um, actually on the Friday, um, as we prepare for Pentecost, we're inviting um, children um, from across our Church of England schools to come to descend on Southall. And we're, going to just gonna, we're organizing a big Pentecost party. Um, I say we, um, like me and Amy, my PA and a few others. And, and already we've only told the schools about uh, a week ago, I think we've already got about 350 signed up uh, to come. So um, anyway, that's going to be interesting, organizing that one for Pentecost Friday. And then we're going to do the same on, on Saturday. and just, We're just going to welcome um, children with their families on this occasion to come and just to be part of a Pentecost celebration um, and just see what God is going to do. And we'd love you to, um, I'd love you to pray for that, and uh, even as you're praying into this area as well. So the glory of God and, and the place of children in the heart of God and therefore in the mission of his church. I want though, um, before I get into this, I want to just ask you to indulge me for a moment of nostalgia um, because I have with me a couple of props this morning. This is um, a cape. Um, this is a superman, a superhero cape. Uh, it was worn by each of our three teenagers. Uh, well, they're not, one of them's not quite a teenager any longer. But our, our three boys passed down through them. Um, this um, is a Superman cape, which I think belonged to uh, Joseph. Um, this is a Batman cape, which I think belonged to Thomas. And, uh, and as he's not here this morning, I can do this. And this is um, a picture of Spider-Man. That's Edward as Spider-Man. Um, he's um, about 7,000 miles away with YWAM at the moment, so I thought I could risk that. And, um, <laughs> so don't tell him online right at this moment if, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Um, now, once the boys, once our boys put on one of these capes, um, or an improvised version, as sometimes was the case, they were instantly endowed with superpowers and ready for an adventure that would usually involve overcoming some huge challenge or danger um, towards the goal of greatness. Um, even sometimes they would, it would end up with them saving the world in the process. Um, now, whether or not you had a Superman cape growing up, and I won't ask for a hands up at this point, all of us here today were born with a desire to be great. Because that's how we come out of the womb. We come out of the womb designed with that purpose. Screaming for a life of meaning, a life of significance. And that's why we grow up dreaming of a life that's got a story that's worth telling. We want in some way to leave our mark on the world, to leave it better off than we found it. 
And that's why if you ask a, a small child aged four or five what they want to be when they grow up, none of them, no child I've ever asked that question has said to me, do you know, I'm thinking of being an accountant. Um, or I'm thinking of, of insurance at the moment. Um, or I feel a real pull to the civil service. Um, if they did, we would be worried. We'd want to kind of get them into therapy really fast. Um, but no, the way they answer, they say things like, I, I want to be an astronaut, um, or I want to be a fireman, or I want to be a football player, or a soldier, or a racing driver, or I'm going to be a film star, or a secret agent. Um, and some of you fear maybe that sounds like a little bit sort of gender sort of specific there. Then I'm just coming, I've grown up with three boys. There are some other dreams that um, some of you with girls or with um, just, you'll know what some of those super dreams are. You see, as far as they can understand the world when they're four or five, children reveal that they are born with a desire to do something that matters. Um, something that will really count, something that will leave their mark. And let me just say, if you're an accountant, you can relax at this point, because the fact is, at four or five, it's the world they know. I, I happen to believe that as an accountant or in insurance, you can make a difference for Christ that can be transformational. I just need to say that in case I get approached by accountants after the service. But, but the reality is we are all born this way, and over the years, we might ignore this desire. We might suppress it. Um, we might deny it. We might lock it away. Um, we might find that some people come along and they stamp all over it. Um, but it won't go away. It's unshakable. And no matter how hard we or others try to crush it, it's still there from our very first breath to our last breath. Because the desire to be great and the desire for glory is put there by God. It's part of what it is to be made in his image. Um, the problem is not the desire itself, but what happens to it. It's born with a fatal flaw, which is called the sinful nature. And in no time at all growing up, the God-given desire for greatness is distorted into a desire to be thought of as great. And the childlike desire to serve and to save the world, to save others, becomes a desire to serve and ultimately save ourselves. And I've been hugely inspired um, by um, a, a book written by someone called John Mark Comer. I'm a pastor and teacher living in um, Portland um, in the US, I, one of the churches that's part of this partnership in, in prayer and fasting that you're going to be sharing in. Um, and uh, Johnny put me onto this teacher. And, I, and um, this book is amazing. And I, um, I say that because some of you know I put Johnny onto uh, Tim Keller's book uh, on Jonah. So I kind of want you to know this is reciprocal, <laughs> the way this works. Um, and isn't it great when it, things work like that? But um, he is so helpful in this book called The Garden City, Work, Rest, and the Art of Being Human. He, in, in it, he writes this. He said, so many of us end up trying to live the wrong kind of dreams, flat, one-dimensional, anemic dreams where the story is all about us, where we are the hero, 
He goes on, how do we live in this tension between our childlike dreams to be and do something that matters and our more adult, ugly desires for power and control and fame and celebrity? To get a better job, a bigger house, a more exciting holiday, another leg up in the world. Well, being a follower of Jesus is about learning to live well in this tension. It really is. Learning to walk by the Spirit. Learning to reorientate our God-given desires so that we are pursuing greatness and glory by pursuing Jesus. And of course, this starts and finishes at the cross, as we'll see in a moment. And so when it comes to this question about the glory of God and about the place of children in the heart of God. I want there uh, two things I want us to notice about the glory of God from our readings this morning, and one thing about the church's mission to children. First of all, uh, about the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle tells us that if we are following Jesus, we are on the road to unimaginable glory. If we are following Jesus, whether we started 10 minutes ago, or whether we've been in in the journey for many, many years, we are on the road to unimaginable glory. Writing to the church in Corinth, chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this. We heard it read earlier. And we all, all, no one left out, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, the glory of God is, um, if you had to define it, it's difficult to define because it, it, in, it encompasses all the goodness of God, all the greatness of God, the infinite beauty of God. Um, if we were to try and gather together um, a picture of God's glory, we could not possibly complete it. Um, it it contains all his character, all his worth. The word glory in the Old Testament is a word that that often can be translated weight. It's it's the weightiness of God, as opposed to the kind of a speck of dust that you could just blow away. This is the, the most weighty thing that we could ever comprehend, the full glory of God. And what Paul is saying here is extraordinary. What he's saying to the Corinthians, uh, to the church in Corinth, he says, you are being transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, there are four versions of yourselves. Um, I heard this recently explained beautifully by um, John Ortberg. Um, in a recent message. And um, there are four versions of yourselves. There is the public self. There is the person who everyone sees. And yes, depending on the relationship, we kind of either show people a little bit more or a little bit less about that public self. There is also the private self. There is the person that only you see with all your fears, all your insecurities, all your unhealthy desires. There's a person that you know. And from time to time, when people get close to us, uh, over time they get to see some of that and we begin to feel able, vulnerable enough to reveal some of that to them. There's the private self. There is also the real self. This is the person that only God sees. The fullest extent. He sees the fullest extent of your brokenness and your self-centeredness. And he sees like, 
you will and I will never see the desperate need that we have for redemption and restoration. That's the person that God sees. And you know, that's a person that God loves with all his heart, even though he sees all of that, the real self. And then there is a fourth self. There's a fourth you. There is the glory you, the glory self. And this is the person that you will certainly become in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And we can spend a lot of time, it seems to me, taking care of what people know and see about our public self. Um, We can, as it were, spend time managing what people perceive of our public self. We can either fall in love or become depressed with our private self. We can completely ignore or live in fear of what's hidden in the darkest recesses of our real self. But we rarely think about our glory self. When someone encounters Jesus, whether it's in a mountaintop moment or it's down in the valley of our biggest struggles and our hardest knocks, God is utterly focused on our transformation into the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's the focus of God towards us. Um, And when we understand this, it seems to me we look at life's knocks very differently. But we also learn to look at the people around us very differently. In his book, um, uh, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis expresses this so brilliantly that I'm going to try and read a whole section. And I'm going to ask you just to kind of galvanize yourself. Try and, if you can, just concentrate on what is quite a long section. But I want to read it to you. It's so significant when it comes to, and so helpful when it comes to understanding um, how we ought to view what God is doing in us and how we ought to view others in light of God's glory. He says this. Are you ready? It's going to come up, I think. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, who are immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind And it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Did you stay with that? Isn't it an amazing picture? No surprise that that Christian follower of Jesus should write the stories of Narnia. Um, 
And, and Lewis finishes off his argument very powerfully simply by saying, next to the blessed sacrament, that's referring to the communion, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object ever presented to your senses. Have a look at them. Uh, this morning. The holiest object presented to your senses. You see... When we understand this, that this is, this is God's plan. This is how God designed us. This is his purpose. This is what the redemption that he brought about through the cross and his resurrection. This is what it's for. To invite us into his glory. To participate in, in it. To grow in it. And to, when we understand this, we look on other people so differently. There is, you see, therefore, no reason to be downhearted about your life right now. Or to give up on any person that you either know or you meet. Because knowing Jesus, following Jesus, places us and others on a path to such greatness and glory that far outweighs anything this world could ever offer us and anything we could ever imagine. Um, that's the third, first thought, okay? It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? We're invited into the glory of God to share in it. And we are on a road to unimaginable glory. Second thought comes from the gospel reading in Luke where uh, J Jesus takes Peter and James and John to be with him on the mountain and, and they get an unprecedented view of his glory. It's a truly amazing moment in the uh, revelation of, of Jesus in the gospel. But then what follows with Peter's ridiculous attempt to kind of bottle that moment, that's what he's trying to do, what follows demonstrates that for followers of Jesus, the pathway to growing in glory is not by staying on the mountain in a moment of holy delight, however wonderful or precious that may be. In God's purpose, growing in glory is accelerated down in the valley where we are face to face with what Jesus has given us to do in and with his world. With sleeves rolled up, with eyes wide open. As Paul puts it, striving with all the energy God so powerfully works within us. As we work together with him to try and establish, to, to be part of establishing a new kingdom with a, a set of values that turn the world upside down. Now I know this morning some of you may be longing to get back on the mountain. Um, and maybe that's what, something you've been praying for a while. Um, and the truth is from time to time Jesus takes us there. There are moments in our journey as followers of Christ where we have, as it were, mountaintop moments. And, and in one sense, when we gather together on, on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, other times, there is a sense of, of the precious, sweet delight of being with others in, in the presence of Jesus. And he reveals his glory and it's, it's wonderful. It's a precious thing. Um, but let's always remember that he is far more interested in growing us in glory towards the greatness that he's designed us to share with him. And therefore, he will do whatever it takes to grow us towards that which he has designed us for. So he may keep us in the valley of some personal struggle or in a place that he has already put us, working and serving others, because his goal is our glory, of us entering into his glory. 
And this is what Peter and James and John learned as they came down from the mountaintop into the valley. And they're presented with a, a, a child in desperate need, desperate parents. And I just love that picture of, of Jesus not only speaking with authority, setting this child free. It's almost as like a moment. Um, I love that picture at the beginning that Joe offered, um, just being felt moved to share of um, uh, Aslan breathing on those statues and them come to life. It's almost it's like that moment for this child. It's just Jesus just breathes, just speaks his breath into that child's life. And they're completely healed, set free. And I love that moment. Just a beautiful moment. And I'm not going to go into it, but when you... Bear in mind, something's been in the news this past week about the engagement of, of um, caring for uh, children in need. I just love this picture. Jesus gives the child back to the father. Isn't a beautiful picture what's happening at that moment? He's restoring family, not just restoring the child. I think that's significant. I haven't got time to go into it more today um, because... The, the, the important thing here, what understanding about what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration is that Jesus loves to reveal his glory and he will reveal his glory. But he grows us towards in the likeness of, of, of uh, his glory uh, more often in the valley than on the mountaintop. He'll give us the mountaintops, but he wants us to go down into the valley And we will find in that valley, we are wrestling with some immense challenges. We see them in our world at the moment. We see them in our city. And what does Jesus say to his disciples when they kind of go, Jesus, we blew it? He says, you can only address this by prayer and fasting. Um, Because you're going to need to depend on me and, and learn not to depend upon yourself. Now, where does that lead us when it comes to the church's mission among children, God's heart for children? Um, well, in the eyes of the followers of Jesus, I believe that we should view every child in this city as someone wearing a cape. As a superhero who is ready to go. Ready to go. And that whatever hopes and dreams that they carry inside them, whatever struggles and temptations they're wrestling with, that they will discover through the love of God that they are not a problem waiting to happen. They are not an educational statistic or an exam machine. They are not a polished trophy to adorn a picture-perfect Christian family. They are not defined by success or failure in the image-obsessed world of social media. I pray that every child in this city will discover that they are unspeakably precious to God. That they're made in the image of God with breathtaking potential to make a difference. And also to share in an eternal weight of glory. And that's why I love what you're doing at Trinity, developing, growing your ministry with children and, and I just am praying that you'll just see that one just explode, um, expand in a way that um, would blow your minds if, if it were set out right now. But that God will enable you to play a part with churches across the city to ensure that there is no child growing up in this city where, as it were, it's, there's a kind of postcode lottery as to whether they will, they, as they're growing up, ever discover how unspeakably precious they are to God. Um, 
And that's the reality at the moment. It, it often depends on whether they're born into a particular family or whether they happen to be living in the neighborhood of a church that can welcome them and, and, and nurture them and encourage them and, as it were, do that in the context of family, which is exactly what Jesus was doing as he ministered not only to the, the, that child but also to his parents. He, he built the family up together. And uh, um, I don't know what that might mean for you at Trinity. You're doing just amazing. What a blessing what's happening downstairs even at the moment. But... I pray that, that you will, as you fast and pray over these 40 days, that, that God will put on, on the hearts of some of you a, a new vision for what that's going to mean for you, not just here on a Sunday, but down in the valley, as it were, um, meeting the needs of those who, who are unspeakably precious, who've been designed by God to be superheroes in his team. Um, but whom, and I, I, I found that moving, that picture that um, Joe shared, I mean, um, there are too many who, who have been turned into statues. Um, we just long that the Spirit will set them free because as Paul said, again in that reading, the Spirit is the one who sets you free. In your life together following Jesus, Trinity Church, with all his people across the city, around the diocese, remember this. Remember this, that your destiny, as Dallas Willard put it, your destiny is to be absorbed in a tremendously creative team effort with unimaginably splendid leadership. Dallas Willard was thinking about Jesus. I'm also thinking about Johnny and Amy as well. Um, on an inconceivably vast plane of activity with ever more comprehensive circles of productivity and enjoyment. This is what no eye has seen nor ear has heard of what God has prepared for those who love him. You're part of this. So Trinity Church, God has only just started with you. He's only just started. And there is much, much more to come. So get ready. This is going to be scary. And it's going to be glorious. And you will be great. But you haven't got to make yourself great or yourself strong. His power will be made perfect in your weakness. So be strong in him. Be strong in the Lord. Um, but in God's eyes, I believe you are all wearing a superhero cape. You really are. That's how God designed you. That's what he set you free to be part of. But never forget... Never forget, you don't need to save the world. He's already done that. He did it on the cross, and he did it on that first Easter morning. All we need to do is to live in his victory and announce it to others and invite them to come with us and play a part in what Jesus is doing, to be a part of his team, to share in making a new kind of world, a world that will be known for its justice and its righteousness and its truth, a world in which everyone will see the shining glory of the love of God. So keep praying and fasting and working for the vision of a church that is truly on fire, a city that is alive. But it starts for all of us, finishes with the cross, this grace flowing to us. And, um, and that's where 
the word of God should always take us um, back to the cross.